So Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, begin reading from verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 32, through Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, for your generous provision for us in your Son. Father, we acknowledge that we are weak, that we are sinful, that we're in need of a Savior. We thank you, Father, that you manifested your love to us, in that while we were yet your enemies, you sent your Son, Christ, to die on our behalf. Father, we thank you that you love those who are unworthy of your love. And Father, you have commanded us that we would love those who are also unworthy of your love. Father, we pray, acknowledging that you show kindness even to the wicked and to the ungrateful, and you call us to do the same. Father, we pray, acknowledging that even as we do this, that we grow in our understanding of your love for us. We pray, Father, and thanks for the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, that he alone is the one who saves sinners. And Father, we acknowledge that he is the one who is praised and honored, and may he be exalted, may your servant be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here we come to understand that there is a principle. Loving others, especially the wicked and the undeserving, that is essential for your growth in grace. Perhaps, perhaps it's this simple. As God has called you not, not to love those who love you, uh, even though you are supposed to do that, he calls you to love the evil. He calls you to love those and, and to pray for those who persecute you. And perhaps you come to the simple conclusion that they are simply unworthy of your love. And I'm seeing that this is one of the essential steps for you to come to a greater appreciation of God's love. Because the, the, the extra one more step, after you finish saying, these people, my neighbors, my, my friends, or, or, or my, my co-workers, my, my um, prodigal children, whatever the situation is, you come to the conclusion they are unworthy of my love. And as you finish that statement, may the very next words out of your mouth be, just as I am unworthy of God's love. And then you realize, oh, well, wait a minute. 
God loved me in far greater ways. Far beyond what I do for others. Because you realize our love is so minuscule compared to the love of God in Christ. Compared to Christ's perfect sacrifice. And then you and I come to understand, wait a minute. It wasn't because we were in any way worthy of God's love. It wasn't because we were in any way worthy of Christ's sacrifice. Well, as we labor for others, we realize it goes unheeded. It goes unnoticed. It goes unappreciated. In fact, it may be despised. And, and then we come to realize, wait, wait a minute, the love of God, the free offer of the gospel, that was despised by you and by me before, before we were given the eyes to see. And that comes to a that brings us to a greater understanding of God's love. And that's essential for our Christian growth. Here we have in in this passage, Ephesians chapter five, verse two, we have the continuation of uh, the description about God's people as the beloved bride, the glorious bride, uh, the bride of Jesus Christ. And here, there's no way to avoid, there's no way to avoid doctrine. That here, we initially talk about there, Ephesians 1 through 3, that is, that is the, the doctrine, and Ephesians 4 through 6, that is the practice, but it's inseparable. And even in these two verses here, the Apostle Paul, as he gives instruction regarding practice, commandments, that he goes back, he goes back again to address the matter of doctrine. And we come to see that the practice is entirely founded upon the doctrines. So here in, in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, we see that as dearly loved children adopted into God's family, imitate the Father in love, even as Christ sacrificially loved you. As dearly loved children adopted into God's family, imitate the Father in love, even as Christ sacrificially loved you. We'll look at this in two points. First is, imitate God the Father, in verse 1. And second, walk in the love of Christ, in verse 2. So the first point, imitate God the Father, from verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We mentioned just earlier that there was a clear transition from Ephesians 1 through 3, speaking about the indicative, speaking about the doctrine to Ephesians 4 through 6, as the Apostle Paul transitions in his letter to speak about practice, to, think, to speak about the, the, uh, the applications, to, think, to speak about the moral imperatives. Here, as uh, in chapter 4, he's already transitioned to speak about general, uh, general imperatives and then specific imperatives as he continues uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> He, the Apostle Paul returns again to doctrine, even as he's giving these practical commands. Here, we come to understand that practice, or God's commandments, are founded upon doctrine. So, the command, be imitators of God, is that founded on the doctrine of God's love and our spiritual adoption into his family as his, as his children? <clears throat> in verse 2, walk in love. Is that not founded on the doctrine of Christ's love and also his atonement? That if outside of his atonement, outside of Christ's love, we, we, we don't quite understand what it means to walk in love. The world 
despises doctrine. <clears throat> we can acknowledge that. And here we think about some of even the, the newer terms being used, that we bring them in. They, they, these, these are new terms that, that the, the world likes to emphasize about what's wrong with Christianity, particularly Christian doctrine. Here, they talk about how it's patriarchal. Hey, you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Was, was that not a, a, a patri- the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people are, are patriarchal. So patriarch is bad. Uh, it's hegemonic. It, it advances the old, uh, the, the old people groups and powers. It's myopic. The people who, who have, have actually been told this, that Frank, your religion, you and your religion are completely myopic because we're not able to see all there is in the world. Uh, we're narrow-minded. We're old-fashioned. Uh, we're bigoted. And we're exclusive. So the world doesn't like doctrine because of these things. And in fact, the world says that doctrine is completely immaterial. It's irrelevant so long as a person is sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. And it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're nice, which means keep your beliefs to yourself. Don't tell anyone they're wrong. And uh, if, if they're going to stick a knife into that outlet, right, you shouldn't stop them because telling them that would be wrong. Well, you think about the belief system. That person is going to get a horrible jolt sticking that metal knife into that outlet socket. Afterwards, right, he, he might get a huge ouch. Maybe his heart will stop. Maybe he'll just get a huge jolt. But you think about believing the wrong thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it leads to death. You think about how bad it would be not to tell someone of those dangers. Here, we ought to understand the claim of irrelevance is false. Doctrine is completely relevant because everyone will inevitably live out the doctrine that they believe. Your life, your choices, your actions, your values, they're entirely a function of the doctrine that you believe. Your theology, what you believe about God, will determine your practice, how you live. Here, I'll give you a simple example. <clears throat> Just think about the Pharisees, the Pharisees of old, or, or the Pharisees of new, which is simply called the self-righteous. The, the self-righteous man will only serve God to the limit that he is better than most people. So he only desires to be in whether the top half a percent or the top 10% or the top half. You, you think about some people, hey, as long as I'm in the top half, I'm okay. And now, you think about uh, the, the errors of practice based on wrong beliefs. The nail in the coffin of that self-righteousness is simply this, the motive. Why does he show love what seems like love to others? It is only so that he can be better than most, better than the bottom half, better than 99%, whatever's the case. In his motive, there is no appreciation for God. It doesn't, it doesn't go back to God. It's not God-centered. It has everything to do with himself. Rather, you think about the commandment here in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So you and I are called to love others because you and I have been loved by God 
as his beloved children. And so then we ought to imitate him. Here, we notice in the beginning of verse 1, you have therefore. And the saying goes, if there's a therefore, you have to ask why it's therefore. So the question is, is this verse related to what came before or is it related to what comes after? Well, if there's a therefore, then it's related to what comes uh, before. <clears throat> but we see that it's related to both. You think about the previous verses. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then the reference of, uh, therefore, be imitators of God, meaning in his kindness, in his tenderheartedness, in his forgiving others. We ought to be imitators of God. So also, we're told that we ought to walk in love, for God is the one who loves you, and that we ought to walk as children of light. Here we have the simple command, be imitators of God. So to imitate means to follow a pattern or a model or an example. Think about the very nature of children. That children, children imitate so well what they see in their parents. And perhaps it doesn't encompass all children, but for many children, uh, they're so good at imitating when they're young. And then they, they hit these teen years, and then they want nothing to do with their parents. They want to do everything completely opposite, and maybe at some point they, they switch back. If you don't have that, well, praise the Lord. Uh, but the very nature of children, they, they are going to imitate someone. And oftentimes what you see is that little children will even imitate the negatives of uh, not only the parents, but those they see, those they watch. And how much more so that we desire that they would imitate the good. That this, this is the very thing that the scriptures are commanding, that we would imitate God. Because he indeed is good. He is goodness itself. Everything about him is good. That for us to see the goodness in God, his holiness, his kindness, uh, his love, his, his forgiving heart. That we would desire to follow and to do as we see. Perhaps at some point people wonder, well, imitating God, how is that different than being a fake? Well, let's consider that for a moment. What is the difference between an imitation Rolex watch and a fake Rolex watch? Well, an imitation Rolex watch, someone is acknowledging that it's not real. They're trying to be like a Rolex. They're trying to make it look like a Rolex, but they, op they openly tell you, this is not a Rolex. The difference of a fake is they're trying to pawn off what is false as the real thing. Here, you think about how we are called to be imitators of God. So, number one, it's saying that we're, we're not fake, we're not fraudulent in the sense that we're not passing ourselves as the real thing. There is only one God. Our command to imitate him says that he is a worthy example to follow. Now regarding not being fraudulent, the question goes all back to our hearts regarding our motives. And our, is there a genuine desire that we would be like our God? The, the fake part of it, the fraudulent part, is if we're trying to be like him only on the outside. It's the inside that matters. It's the motive that counts. Here, perhaps some people are asking the question too, why, why are we called to imitate God? Well, first, 
It's because he is a worthy model for us to follow. God has two types of attributes. One is his incommunicable attributes, things such as his omnipresence, that God is everywhere, his immutability, that God does not change, and other characteristics such as that. We're not called to to imitate him in those incommunicable attributes. Rather, we're called to imitate him in his communicable attributes, that of his kindness, his holiness, his mercy, his truthfulness, his love, and the like. Here, God's love to us is not merely a general benevolence, but is the love of a spiritual father. When we think back to Ephesians chapter 1, we remember the principle of love and how that is the basis of our adoption as children. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here, God's love was the reason for sending his son. But by this, love of God was manifested in us, that God had sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him, 1 John 4, 9. Here, we think about God's motivation. Why did he send his son? We're told that it was love. It was also for his own glory. Perhaps at times, we ought to marvel. We ought to wonder why God would love us, 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So there's a marveling. Behold, how can this be? This manner of love that God has bestowed on us, that we would actually be called his children. You mean rebels, those who despise God's authority, his power, his creation, that we, we in every ounce of our being would hate him, and despise him and rebel against him. And he's saying, no, 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 no. We're, we're going we're gonna to offer to such people that they would become inheritors of, of the promises and, and, and the merits that Jesus has, has achieved. You, you mean that heaven that, that Jesus deserves, that he is going to share that with us? Yes, indeed. That is the good news of the gospel that you who are in Christ, you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that your sins are forgiven. That exceedingly great promises are freely offered to you. You ask, how can this be? Well, indeed, behold, what manner of love the Father has shown to us. This should be what we should be doing all the time, marveling how God could love sinners such as us. Here, we think about the content of God's love. The world often doesn't understand the concept of hard love. It thinks about love in, in terms of uh, the, the soft aspects, that when we want something, we ask him, he gives it to us. But there's also, clearly in the scriptures, this presentation that God shows us the hard part, the, the discipline part, the chastisement. But the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, 6. Oftentimes, 
We don't like that. It's not pleasant to us. That when we ask, we don't receive. Because he wants to see how serious we are. He wants us to learn patience so, so he doesn't answer right away. That at times we, we ask and he gives us the answer of no. So that we might understand that he is far wiser than we are. God, I think this is good for me. God's answer of not providing it is his answer of he is wiser than us and he knows what is best for us better than we do. Here, this is part of discipline. Perhaps we can also say that you will inevitably imitate someone or something. Consider Jesus' rebuke of the Jewish leaders when he said, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. So there's a warning there. You notice that Jesus, he didn't pick the worst, he picked the very best. He picked the very best in, in God's kingdom. These would be the religious leaders and he says that they are of their father the devil. Well, what about the rest of the people then? So there's only two possibilities. Either we're, we're uh, being operated in by the prince of the power of the air, uh, the one who works in the sons of disobedience, or we're being operated on by the Holy Spirit. There's only two options. We're either going to imitate Satan, or we're going to imitate God. Perhaps another way to put that is that uh, you think about the world's desire. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That we're following the world or we're following the Satan, right? Those are one and the same. The contrast, though, is if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we will be those who imitate the Father and love him. See also here, this blessed order... Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The command is not holding out a carrot. If you imitate God closely enough, well enough, uh, uh, diligently enough, then you just might become his beloved children. That is not the verse at all. Rather, since you are beloved of God, dearly loved children, you ought to imitate our God. He's already made your children. And then he says, imitate him. So this is the first point. Imitate God the Father. We have the second point. Walk in the love of Christ. There in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here, we think about this series of imperatives that we have in Ephesians 4 and 5 regarding the theme of the imperatives about walking. Ephesians 4.1, he begins, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The acknowledgement there is that in Jesus we have a very high calling and that we ought to walk according to it. Ephesians 4.17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In Ephesians 5.2, we have here walk in love, and that this love ought to be the resounding theme in your life and mine. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light, no longer in darkness, but as those who walk in the light. 
And then Ephesians 5.15, walk not as unwise, but as wise. Here, this command to walk in love, it's a reminder to us as Christians that the savor of love ought to be in your life. It ought to be in the life of every Christian. Colossians 3.14 summarizes it so well. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. For, for a Christian, living a life thoroughly saturated with love is not an option. This is what the Lord calls us to. He's put the love in our lives because he's given us the good news of the gospel. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. When before Christ, we would acknowledge There's no possible way that we could love someone else. We're too self-centered. It's always me. It's always about my needs. The work of the Holy Spirit empowers us that we can love others. Here, the, the world often describes love as a feeling or a sentiment. And it's a passing one at that. Here, I think about the group, the Righteous Brothers... Perhaps we should call them the unrighteous brothers. He, they talk about this, you've lost that loving feeling. Well, well, love has to be something better than that. Because here, you know, love is sentiment, it passes away. Well, sorry, I, I lost that loving feeling. Well, what happens now? Here, love is not a feeling. This is not the description in the Bible regarding love. It's not a passing feeling. Love includes choices, actions, commitment. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Here, the very matter of word and tongue, it's, it's above and beyond just these sentiments and feelings. It's saying that love must be manifested in deed and truth. It is, it is something that's objective. It can, be, it can be measured. Hey, these actions that are done, this is what we do for those whom we love. Here, we think about Christ's love for us then. So verse 1, Ephesians 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. And the reasons are because you are beloved children. Having been loved first by God the Father, we ought to imitate him. So also here in verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the commandment, walk in love, is backed up with the doctrine of this is what Christ has done for you in love. Think about Christ's love for us. He describes it, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And then it wasn't as if Jesus mentions this great thought, and then he says, okay, you guys are on your own. No, he, he says this, and then shortly after that, he goes to the cross for these disciples of his who, like us, were entirely unworthy of his sacrifice. Uh, Jesus gave himself up voluntarily and completely. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to give you a kidney. He didn't say, I'm going to give you one of my lungs. I'm going to give you a quart or a pint of my blood. He gives his life entirely. It means that he lost, in a sense. He, He lost life in order that you and I might gain life. Here, We think about this very idea of a voluntary. It was a voluntary laying down his life. 
It's not a situation in which Jesus was powerless. He wasn't stuck. It wasn't that he, he between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus did not draw the short stick. It wasn't something in which he was stuck. It wasn't something that he was powerless or had no authority to do. In fact, the scriptures describe entirely the opposite. John 10, 17, 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So here, Jesus, entirely in control. Jesus, when he was betrayed, you had Peter come in, takes the sword, whacks off the ear of, of um, was that Malchus? Malchus, or was it Malchus's servant? He whacks off his ear. Jesus, he, he explains, hey, listen, Peter, do, do, do you think I needed you as my bodyguard? I have however many 12 legions of angels. Say, hey, listen, he's entirely in authority. He has full power. The, the thing that the world doesn't understand is if he's hanging on the cross and he has any power, he would change that. He would just come down. That, that's exactly what the Jewish thing. If he, is, if he is God, he has the authority and power, he can come down. What they didn't understand is why he would do that. What, what would be his choice? Why was he choosing to do that? He was doing that for a very purpose. Something that they did not understand. The very concept of an offering is that it's voluntary. It's voluntary. Jesus not only did this voluntarily, he did it joyfully. He did what no one else could do. He, he offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's divine justice. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't just something he did voluntarily. It was something he did joyfully because he was saying, the product of this suffering will be the salvation of my people. He had you in mind. Here, think again about doctrine. Throughout church history, there, there were various theories about what Christ came to do, about the theory of the atonement. The correct one, the right one, is called the penal substitutionary view. And you ask, well, why does it matter? Well, it matters a lot. It matters a whole lot. Here, there are other theories. But this one in particular, penal, meaning Jesus died to pay a penalty, the very penalty that you and I deserve. So, so he's, he's dying for a particular purpose to pay a price. Like, he wasn't dying merely to say, look how much I love you. I've suffered this much. And, and the, the worst thing is that God, if, if he could just give a presidential pardon and that, hey, there doesn't, there doesn't need to be a, a sacrifice to be paid. Justice doesn't have to be satisfied. God, God could have just said, you know what? I'm going to sweep it all under the rug for all of you. And the question is, why did he make his son suffer on the cross? And how was that love? You see, if it wasn't required, then it's like, well, shoot, this is just, this is just torture. There was a penalty that had to be paid. It's not as if our God, who was holy, can just look the other way. Hey, I'm, I'm going to look that way. You guys go this way. 
you enter heaven. No, that's not how it works. Jesus died to pay the penalty that we were supposed to pay. And it was substitutionary because Jesus died in your place and in mine. It's the right view of the atonement. When you think about God's view of it, we see that even in Genesis chapter 8. We have the account of Noah. Genesis 6, 5, that uh, God saw that the wickedness of man's heart, the wickedness on the earth was great, and he was grieved by it. And then we were told that he sent this flood. He spared Noah and his family. And then in <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8, we're told, And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So he makes a covenant. He makes a promise. He's not going to wipe out the world again by a flood. Here, he was pleased with the sacrifice that Noah offered. Perhaps we see here is that there was an acknowledgement. Wiping the whole world out by a flood did not fix the problem of sin. That all points ahead. Then you look at the whole Jewish sacrificial system. It was pointing ahead to Jesus who would come. The, the, the mention of sacrifice here in verse 2. And he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It wasn't by judgment that there would be a solution. It was by sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And then we think about how John the baptizer, in seeing Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That everything about the Old Testament system, the sacrifices, they were all pointing ahead to this Jesus who would come. And then the temple was destroyed because the purpose of it was gone. That one sacrifice, Jesus sat down. No more is needed. They were only pointing ahead to Jesus who would come. And then I ask you, people of God, will you trust in this Lord Jesus? Do you believe that God's plan all along was that he would send his son? That these sacrifices, these priests, uh, the shedding of blood, they were all reminders that there would be a perfect sacrifice in Jesus. That ultimately, everything in history points to him. And that as, as we look back to him and what he did, that the focus, the center is Jesus Christ. And that you realize that you and I can do nothing to wipe away the sins, our, our evil, sinful record. We cannot do anything to fix that. That the only solution that God provides for us is to repent and to believe in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. That it is only by faith in Him that we receive forgiveness of sins. It is only by trusting in Christ's perfect righteousness that we have righteousness at all. And here, this is our proper response to it. Walk in love, just as Jesus has loved you. Here, Jesus says, a new commandment that I give you. You love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there's two loves. It's supposed to be a love for the brethren, that we should love one another who are in Christ, that we should be tender-hearted, kind, forgiving one another. It's what the Lord calls us to. And there's also the love even for those who do us harm. Here, think about what a proper witness looks like. It's not only saying all the right things, and I openly admit that in my witnessing to others, that I don't always say the right thing. Right? Hey, how did I end up saying that? Well, this is part of being refined. So yes, we ought to have the right witness regarding what we say, that which is true, that which the Lord has told us. But it also ought to be done with love. Here, you think about some of the people that you know. Perhaps you don't know what they think of you, but if there were such an interview, they might say, you know what? This person seems to be in love with Jesus. That much is true. And I don't believe what they believe, but you know what? This neighbor of mine or this, this coworker of mine, there is consistency in his or her life. They show love to me. That's undeserved. So this Jesus that they follow he must be worth something. Here, we think about what the Lord has called us to. We put this together. Loving people, loving Jesus, walking in love, and this pleasing or fragrant aroma. Part of our witness is that we would love others, and this would be an aroma of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. Here, none of us is. That's the answer to the question, who is sufficient? No, no one is. But... In our own weak way, as jars of clay, as we manifest the love of Christ before others and bear witness of this good news, not everyone will receive it pleasantly. To God, it is a fragrant aroma. But to those who are perishing, we're told it is aroma of death unto death. Meaning, meaning your love to them, your witness to them, it's a reminder someday you will stand before God and he will condemn sinners. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Here, we ought to acknowledge that the world does not appreciate unpleasant aromas. The world says that aroma is a stench. But God says that aroma is pleasing. It is fragrant and he desires it. He delights in it. Here, we ought to understand how important it is and we understand the love of God, the love of Christ, and that through your growth and your exercise of love, you come to a greater appreciation of God's love, of Christ's love. And that's through the very series of conclusions. As you love the wicked, as you love those who are unworthy, that you and I conclude, nor neither am I, neither are you, to receive the love of God, the Father, and the love of Jesus Christ, his Son. Here, the love of the brethren is also essential regarding your assurance of salvation. 
that God commanded it. He says that we ought to love our brethren. And he says that this is how we know that we're walking in the light, that we're loving those who love him. Here, also, it's imitating God. God delights when we follow him. He says that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That God delights when you walk in the truth and that you love him and honor him. Here, this is also a reminder about Christ's perfect sacrifice. That it is indeed priceless. It is of infinite worth to sinners. So believe upon Jesus even today that we might trust in him. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.